Lord, we thank you for your love. That's not fractured. It's not disengaged. God, we don't know a relationship in this life and in this world that is so in touch and intentional and in tune that would know every hair that's on our head, that makes sure to catch every tear and keep it safe. God, your love is unexplainable. And we definitely don't deserve it. But God, we thank you for it. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us comfortless when you went back to glory, that you sent another comforter, your Holy Spirit, to remind us continually of who we are and to reveal the love of God, to reveal Jesus. God, we thank you for these moments. Thank you for your presence here with us. And God, I have to believe that everything is orchestrated today. Everyone that's here came on purpose, your purpose, because you are ready to encounter them. God, there's somebody here today that's been in church their whole life, but their heart has never been lit on fire with the Spirit of God. They've done the duty, but they've never known what it is to have a true, intimate, passionate relationship with their Heavenly Father where they hear your voice and they see miracles done because of the power that faith has in a person's life. God, I pray today that they'd have their eyes opened and capture that vision, that they'd capture your heart for them today. God, there's people here that have come with heavy burdens, whether it's emotional or spiritual or physical. And we know that the only answer is Jesus. You're it. And the first step to healing, the first step to new life is trusting in the sacrifice of Christ. Giving our hearts all to you. And so, Father, I just pray for those that are here today that have never truly in their life got on their hands and knees and said, God, I'm turning from sin and I'm giving my whole self to you, heart, mind, and body, so that I can be saved, I can be changed, and I can live today forever for your glory, God, that before they leave this place, Lord, that you would so flood them with your love and presence, that they would take that step of faith and be made new. And that the healing that they're looking for, the healing in their body, the healing in their mind, the healing in their emotions would begin the moment they said, God, I'm going all in. I thank you for your word today, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just fill me, that the word would come with grace and love. There are times where Jesus had a stern word, where he spoke directly about issues. But everything he spoke was spoken in love. And I pray, God, that today be the same. As we confront mindsets and things that enable the enemy's work in our life, God, 
And as we shine the light on his schemes and plans, it's easy to maybe look at ways that we've fallen short and, and take offense or feel uh, guilty and ashamed. And God, that's not my intention. That's not your intention today. God, we shine light on issues so that we can walk in the truth. And the truth, Jesus said, will set us free. So God, I pray that the enemy would not have any ground in this place. That all ears would be closed to his lies and his poison and his emotional manipulation. And today, Father, you would have a captive audience. And that today, God, miracles would happen in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You all can be seated. Thank you so much for being here. That was my guitar. It's all right. So we are in week three. Thank you for being here with us today. Again, we're having a few technical difficulties. Normally, we would have uh, the scriptures on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible with you uh, and you have a smartphone, you can navigate to the YouVersion Bible app. And on the YouVersion Bible app under the live events page should be the sermon notes. So the scriptures that we use today will be included there for you. Um, but uh, We'll just kind of uh, go with what we have here today, and I believe that God has got something very special in mind for us. We are in week three of a series we've been doing called the 40-Day Fast, and we've been looking at the time Jesus went into the desert to fast and pray, and while he was there, he was attacked by the enemy, the devil, for 40 days and nights. I mean, we can't even fathom what this is like. We, we have a bad day when we wake up with just a tiny bit of depression. When, when, when one of the enemy's little helpers comes in and begins to mess with our lives. Imagine the full weight of hell being unleashed upon you for a straight month, over a month, continually. We can't imagine the weight of sorrow and the things Jesus was going through. But during this time in his life during this season, as he's giving himself fully to God, as he's depending on the Lord, we are giving a glimpse into some of the ways the enemy attacked him through temptation and other means. There's really three main encounters, and we've been kind of looking at these. Last week, uh, we basically looked at his temptation where Satan asked Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And we recognize that his attack really was rooted in an attack on identity, on identity. See, what we identify with or the way we identify ourselves will determine what or who we become, the decisions we make. And so the first thing Satan goes after is the identity of Christ. Just before in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. He was anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Then God speaks from heaven. The Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who brings me great joy? The Father confirmed the identity of His Son. God confirmed it. Jesus knew who he was. And the first thing Satan goes after when Jesus is in the desert, we read, is the identity of Jesus. If you are the son of God, he calls it into question. So this is the, what we unpacked last week. One of the ways Satan tempts us to lead us into sin is through calling into question our identity. He's preying on our pride to urge us to turn stones into bread. And we use that as figurative language to identify that there are things in this life, there are stones that God created and intended to be stones, 
But anytime we try to turn what God intended to be a stone into a loaf of bread to satisfy our flesh, to feed our pride, it becomes a point of sin or dysfunction in our lives. And the reason why many of us live dysfunctional lives and can't seem to overcome the attacks of the enemy and when it comes to temptation and sin is because rather than living on the word of God, as Jesus said, we're eating a steady diet of rocks. We're continually falling prey to this temptation, stepping out of God's will and trying to satisfy ourselves and our flesh with whatever this world has to offer. We're eating a steady diet of rocks. We're listening to the lies of the devil. And the result is not fulfillment, joy, peace, and satisfaction. The result is a dry mouth and a sick soul. Have you ever been to a playground and, and watched the children like play on the playground? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You would think that with technology today that a playground equipment would not be so exciting, but it is. And even the, like the stones and the rocks that they have to run in seem to be great fun. I mean, kids are picking them up and filling their pockets full of rocks or, you know, they're putting it on the, the slide and w watching it come down and waiting for the person who doesn't know that the slide's full of rocks to collide with them and get all scraped up, you know. And then there's always that one kid that, that's a little different who decides to take a handful of rocks and shove them in his mouth, you, you know. And, and as, you, as you watch this, you're like, he's going to realize that was a bad idea really quickly. And so what seems like a good idea, uh, filling your mouth full of rocks, becomes a bad idea quickly as you're just like, you know, trying to spit it out. And, but the thing is, is this is what we do all the time. When we look at the world and we see the enticements of the enemy, we look at the rocks and we say, hmm, that seems like it's more like a loaf of bread than a rock. And we fill our mouths with dysfunction. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we have really two forms of the revelation of God's word. We have the Holy Bible, which is the scripture, the inspired word of God. This is the foundation of our faith. The word of God breathed out, revealed to us in written form as the Holy Spirit led men of old and the prophets to write and record for us. But then there's a second form of the word of God, which is God's personal revelation. In Joel 2 and confirmed in Acts 2, God's will was for every follower of Christ, every believer, to become a prophet. It says, in the last days, he would pour out his spirit, and your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. That God's word, this new covenant era, is God has anointed every child of God to be a prophet. No longer is it reserved for one man in one office at one time, but all children of God can hear God's voice. You can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. And the thing about the voice of God is the reason why it's so important to read the scriptures and devour the word, learn it, not just read it casually so you're familiar with the stories, but understand what God is communicating is because the Spirit wrote this book. The Spirit of God wrote this book. All scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, the Spirit of God will never contradict this book. He will never speak something to you or lead you in such a way that is in conflict with the scriptures. And so as we learn to hear God's voice, it's important that we understand what he's already said so we can discern between the voice of God and the voices in our head. And there are more than one voice in our head. The enemy 
will speak. He'll whisper. He'll try to lead us astray. And if we know the scripture, if we're not living on bread alone, but we're living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, we'll discern the scheme of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, and we will be able to take every thought captive, submit it to be obedient to Christ and live a victorious life. If we learn what God says about himself and what he says about us, we won't question our identity. We won't question the truth but we'll be able to take every thought captive that contradicts. This way we don't skip over the table of delights at God's table, but we skip over the rocks at the enemy's buffet. So today we're going to look at the next attack of the enemy, and we're going to see something significant. Satan kind of changes his attack. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the second attack of the enemy. And here, the first attack was really getting Jesus to question his identity and to seek the world, the things of the world, for fulfillment. Because he, to doubt God's, uh, God's promises, to doubt God's word. But here, he does something a little differently. He tries to leverage pride to get Jesus overconfident in who he is and to make his life about himself. You see, Satan will attack you in one of two ways, or maybe both ways simultaneously. He will either get you to doubt who you are and whose you are, causing you to lose faith in God, empowering fear, guilt, and shame to direct your thoughts and your feelings and your actions, or he'll try to make you overconfident in who you are to lose faith in God by putting faith in yourself. Look what I can do. Look how great I am. To make you put your faith in your own greatness, which is ultimately what caused Satan's fall to begin with. Either way, either insecurity or overconfidence, your identity becomes compromised and you open the door for Satan to work in your life. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, we read the word of the Lord. It says this, it says, The devil took Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place in the temple. It's kind of weird to talk about the devil this way. I mean, when we think about the devil, he's like the baddest bad guy. He's the baddiest bad guy, right? He's the worst, the, the worst possible. You know, he's the one that we're actually, the only one I think biblically we're allowed to hate. The Bible says we're to hate evil, and evil is Satan, right? He is evil incarnate. So he is the absolute worst, and so it's, it's weird to talk in, in even appreciate the devil a little bit, but that we really need to not underestimate the enemy that we have. We should not underestimate the devil. Why? Because in Genesis 3, when Satan first appears in the form of the serpent, God says about the serpent that he is the most subtle of all the creatures, of all the beasts of the field. He's the most subtle of every creature that God had made. That word subtle in the original Hebrew language is also translated as crafty. He's the most crafty. So if you think about the devil, he is so subtle, you don't see him coming. And he's so crafty that he can easily 
deceive you and get you deceived before you can even recognize it. And we see this in the picture of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are tempted and they fall into sin as they get as Satan gets them to question God's goodness and the truth of God and whether or not he was telling them the truth and it gets them to think that God maybe was holding something out on them that they were missing something that they already had. He is so crafty and so brilliant at deceiving people. We need to appreciate really who the devil is. That way we don't fall prey to his schemes. And not only here in this passage is he changing direction, his method of attack from insecurity to overconfidence, but he uses a passage of scripture as he quotes the Bible to Jesus from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is considered by many to be a spiritual warfare passage of Scripture. If you read it, it talks about protection from God for the people of God. It talks about uh, being saved during times of warfare. It talks about being able to stand against demonic spirits and the enemy and remove them from their, your path, to, that the enemy can't stand against the children of God. It, it's a very powerful passage of Scripture, especially those that have issues at night or nervous or have night terrors. It's a great passage of Scripture to read before bed just to give you that confidence that God is with you. And so when we look at what the enemy is doing here, we really see why it's important to know the Scriptures. Why is it important to not just read the Bible but know the Scriptures? Well, it's because the enemy knows them too. The enemy knows the Bible too. He knows it inside and out. And because our enemy knows them, he also, with his cunning, crafty, and subtle nature, is an expert in twisting the scriptures just enough to keep them sounding true while containing enough error to derail your life. And this is where legalism comes in. This is where religious error comes in. This is where all these doctrines come in that stifle people's faith and keep them you know, buried under guilt and shame, feeling like God could never be happy with me. That he is so easy. It's so easy for us to fall prey to his schemes. He's been causing destruction and reaping, reaping havoc in the church for millennia, for generations. And this psalm speaks of protection of God, overcoming the enemy, the authority to crush any spirit that stands in your way, and you would think the devil would be freaked out about this passage of Scripture. Like, oh my gosh, this, is, this like tells Jesus this would give him faith to overcome me. You would think he would abhor this passage, but instead of being freaked out about it, he uses it against Jesus. So picture of this conversation that the enemy is having with the Lord. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and as they're looking down, it's probably a busy city street, He's looking down. It's a high. It's upward to 350 feet in the air. Uh, and uh, you're looking down. He's having this conversation. And he said, hey, you know the scriptures. You must be something really special. You, you, you must be something special to God. I mean, think about it. The, the psalm that I'm telling you not only says that if you were to fall, the angels would spring into action and catch you. But, but you know, it also talks about you having power and authority over me. Right, right? I'm no threat to you. Like, what can I do against you? You're the son of God. What can I do with you? You know, you should just, you should just jump and let the, the, the angels catch you and, and everyone would see you and they would begin to worship you and, and adore you and you could begin your kingdom now. Well, what, what is it that you'd have to do with me, Jesus? 
There must be nothing you're afraid of. See, Satan was trying to get him and use the scriptures to cause pride and arrogance to well up in his heart and make him think, yeah, you know what? I am. I am pretty great. I am powerful. I do have power over you. The angels will catch me. They will catch me if I were to fall. Maybe I should jump. There's nothing I need to be afraid of. He was trying to goad him into becoming proud and arrogant. And this is the very same attack, one of the attacks the church at large has been suffering under for generations. And it focuses itself, this attack, on being caught when we fall. To think of when we are caught when we fall. Notice there's something so significant as I was meditating on this passage of Scripture and preparing the message It's like God just kind of unpacked this scene for me. And I want to take you a little deeper into the the theology here, understanding what's happening, because we can't fully appreciate this scene unless we know a little backstory. When Satan, before Satan fell, he had another name. Do you know his name? Lucifer. Lucifer is called in the Old Testament the mighty cherub, or the cherub who covers. The cherubim are angels that stand before the presence of God and guard the throne of God. And so we're talking about the highest of high ranks in heaven. He was the top dog. It says that God made him a special wardrobe filled with jewels, even had like symbols and and clanging things on his garments so that uh, music would be sounding. And and when the light of God's glory would, would emanate from his throne, it would reflect off of Lucifer's clothing and fill the heavens with beauty and splendor and glory. And he was the one who stood atop of the the presence of God and covered the ark or the presence of God in heaven. In the Old Testament, it says that God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle and it carried over to the temple that everything constructed inside would mirror the reality of heaven, God's throne room that everything would stand. So if you were to go into the temple when it was still uh, in existence, you'd walk into the Holy of Holies, you'd see the pedestal where the Ark of the Covenant was, and you'd see giant angelic beings on either side, and their wings expanded to kind of guard and cover the Ark. This was Satan's job. His job was to guard the presence of God and to cover the presence. He was the worship leader in heaven. He was the one who uh, led the angels of glory into worship. The temple on earth represents the presence in the throne room of God. Uh, In the nation of Israel, the temple was the center of all their faith. This is where they went to do sacrifices. This is where they did every festival. This is where atonement for sin was made. This was the centerpiece for their faith. All of city life revolved around the temple. This is where the covenant of God resided in the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that included or held the uh, Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. It was the very foundation, the temple was the very foundation of everything they believed. That's why whenever the temple was constructed, they rejoiced that they knew God would always be with the nation. And when it was destroyed, they were devastated because they believed God uh, abandoned the nation. The temple was so important. And so here Satan takes Jesus to the what part of the temple? The bottom or the top? Takes him to the top. So if you can imagine here, they're at the top of the temple. Satan is there in the bottom of the temple is the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. 
So he is back where he was in heaven, symbolically. He takes Jesus now, who is the guardian of the presence of God. Remember what happened at his baptism? The angel or the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and it says it rested on him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people for feats of strength, for miraculous deeds, but then he would depart. When Jesus came onto the scene, the Holy Spirit laid on him and indwelled him in fullness. There was no place the Holy Spirit was unless Jesus was there. He held the presence. He guarded the presence. So now the presence of God, the guardian, the true guardian of the presence is now on top of the temple, which symbolized God's throne room. And Satan, the one who used to guard the presence, is standing there with Jesus. And he's telling Jesus, jump off. You see, when Satan was in heaven as Lucifer, pride began to well up in his heart. And he thought, you know, I'm pretty something special too. I'm pretty beautiful. I'm pretty glorious. I should be worshiped too. I want to be like God. Matter of fact, I want to set my throne above God's throne. And he's so crafty and so subtle that he convinced a third of the angels of heaven to follow him. And there was a war that broke out in heaven and they were cast down to the earth. And here in this moment, we see this picture of what's happening. Satan is saying, you know what? I got cast down and I had no choice. But you, Jesus, can choose to jump. You can choose to jump. You can choose to leave the foundation of the faith, to leave the foundation of the presence of God and everything that you knew to be held true. And you, I mean, don't worry about it because God promised he would catch you when you fell. And when they catch you, when the angels catch you, men will see and they'll worship you as God. He was goading him to do the very thing Satan wanted to do for himself the entire time. I'm going to leave my original place in heaven. I'm going to leave the foundation of everything that I am and believe so that I can set myself up as the God above all gods. And here he's pushing Jesus to do the very same thing. Leave the presence. Leave the foundation of your faith. And the church has been wrestling with this same thing for generations. Except we don't use the words, leave the foundation of your faith or jump off the temple to describe it. We use words like once saved, always saved. Or eternal security. Or to refer to someone that maybe has jumped off the presence of God and has jumped away from the foundation of their faith for a time, we call them backslidden. These are Christian words in reference to a believer who has walked away or jumped off the foundation of their faith. You see, many people have become so overconfident in who they are as a child of God in understanding what it is to be saved that they no longer really trust in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. They trust in a prayer that they prayed in a service at one point sometime in their lives. And they rely on that prayer to save them. And yet they live as if they've never trusted Jesus to begin with. They believe that God has put himself on the line to catch them when they fall. And they've jumped to leave the very foundation of their faith, which is the essence of the gospel message. The essence of the gospel is that we are all born sinners. We are all born already judged and on our way to hell. But God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation comes when you recognize you're a sinner, you turn to God for the salvation of your souls through placing your faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you surrender your life to him. But we have people that believe no matter how many times they jump, God will always be there to catch them. Their salvation is secure no matter what because of some prayer they prayed, not because of the life they live. But let's look at what Jesus says to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. In Matthew 4, verse 7, Jesus responds to the devil's temptation and he says, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Somebody say test. Do not test the Lord your God. The title of this message today is this. Are you testing or are you trusting? Are you testing or are you trusting? See, it's my belief that many Christians, and I've been guilty of this myself, test the Lord of God, our God every day of your lives. And you might be say, say how, how are we testing? How are we testing the Lord? And I would say it's because you're jumping off the temple. You're jumping off the foundation of the, your faith. Because you do not know the scriptures, as Jesus stated before, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You don't know the scriptures, therefore you do not know God's will. And as a result, you're letting the enemy inform you on what is good, what is true, and what is right. You're letting the enemy inform you and culture inform you about what you should think and believe and he's twisted it so that you're actually on the path of destruction, not on the path to the abundant life. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And likewise, as believers, we've turned the unmerited grace of God into the unending grace of God and we're abusing his grace. We're abusing his grace. What is unmerited grace? Unmerited grace is simply grace we do not deserve. Grace we don't deserve. Paul in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine says that salvation comes by grace and it is a gift. We don't deserve it. You cannot earn it. It is freely given when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. No one can boast about being saved or, or how they acquired salvation because we all get there the same way through faith and trust in Jesus. It's not about ourselves. We cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do. It is completely a gift. It is unmerited. None of us could do enough good in this world to be worthy of the grace of God. Unmerited grace. We can't fathom God's grace, but we worship him because of it. We worship him because of it. Unending grace is grace that gives me a license to live however I want to and keep my salvation secure. Unending grace is grace that gives me a license to live however I want to and keep my salvation secure. In other words, I can keep jumping off the temple, testing God just to pursue maybe whatever I feel is right and good in my life. I can continue leaving, living in and through the presence of God, walking in the spirit. I can continue living according to how I feel, what feels good, what I think and believe, whatever I want to do. And God has put himself on the line to catch me when I fall. In the end, God will save me because I prayed a prayer because his grace is unending. And because of this, we have many believers in Christ who claim Jesus with their mouth, but they live like the devil. 
And this is why man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here's the question. Jesus relied on the scriptures to inform him. What does the word of God actually say about a follower of Jesus Christ, about what a true believer will be like? First, we look in John 15, verses five through eight. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words, the scriptures, remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great glory to my Father. First, we recognize this is Jesus, that he is the vine. We're the branches from the vine. But for, in order for us to bear fruit, it says we must remain connected to the vine. We must remain in Jesus. Those who do not remain, Jesus said, are pruned and set aside to be burned. This is symbolic of judgment, of hellfire, which means it's not about praying a prayer at some point in your life. It's about a changed life lived through faith in Jesus Christ. It's about a revolutionary relationship, one that completely turns your life upside down. Here we have Jesus speaking of salvation, and only those who produce fruit will be saved. Those who produce righteous fruit are those who remain in him. So what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Luke 6, through 46, Jesus said, A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Heart. Verse 46, he says, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? When you don't do what I say. When you live opposite to my words. Now you see, none of us are without sin. That's why we need a Savior. But Jesus is making the case that unless you're abiding in the vine, you don't even have a shot because sin will be what is produced in your life. But a person who remains in the vine will produce good fruit. These are works of righteousness. These are the works of Christ. Jesus said in John 14 that those who are truly my disciples would do the same works I've done and even greater. That there are things that Jesus has modeled for us that will be what's produced in the life of a believer. Jesus said in, I believe it's John 8, he says, you are truly my disciples if you remain in the truth. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. There are characteristics, there are descriptions of what a true believer is like. The flip side, a person who does not produce good fruit is producing works of the flesh. They're indulging in sin. They're letting their emotions and their sin lead, not the Word of God, not the Holy Spirit, because they're focused on their own comfort, their self-image, and they're not really interested in the things of God. So they are lacking genuine works of righteousness in their lives that are produced by the Holy Spirit. And Paul clarifies the difference between a good tree and a bad tree or good fruit and a bad fruit in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the difference between unending grace and unmerited grace. In Romans 6, 
He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. If we skip down to verse 12, he continues and says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? Somebody say a slave. You become a slave to whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You become a slave to whatever you choose to obey. Now, what we have to understand about sin is that sin is not just the big things. It's just not the big ten, like don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, these, these things that we think of. It's not just the big sins that he's talking about. Sin is not just what you do that violates God's character and nature. It's also what you choose not to do. In James, he says, if you know to do good, but you choose not to do it, that's sin. If you violate your conscience, Romans 14, that is sin. There are many ways sin tries to get a hold of our lives. Many ways the word of God teaches us to avoid sin. But right here, Paul is saying that the difference between a good tree and a bad tree, good fruit and bad fruit, is the intention of someone's life. It's not perfection. You'll never be perfect till Jesus comes back and gives you a glorified body that's without sin. It's the intention of someone's life. A true believer in Christ will live a life of repentance, turning away from sin and pursuing a spirit-filled and spirit-directed life, one that endeavors to give God glory with all that they are in heart, mind, body, and soul. James, in his letter to the church, he said, I won't just say I have faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith because a true believer in Christ will be in constant pursuit of the heart of God. They'll devour his word so he just won't be a hearer of the word, but he'll be a doer, acting on God's word, acting in faith, learning to hear his voice and act on it to discover how he can give himself and his life over more and more to the Lord because God is worthy of all we are and all we have. But a person who tests the Lord rather than trusts the Lord, a person that tests the Lord will intend in their heart not to live for God's glory, but for their own self-satisfaction. They'll use the grace of God as their get-out-of-jail-free card. And they'll say things like, oh, that's not for me, or that doesn't apply to me, or that's true for you, but not true for me, or I've done that before and it doesn't work, so I'm just gonna do what I feel is right for me, or God doesn't really care about what I do. It doesn't matter that my relationship doesn't honor Jesus. It doesn't matter that I'm addicted. It doesn't matter that I lose my temper or that I live under a heavy weight of unforgiveness and bitterness. It doesn't matter 
that I'm stingy or overindulgent. It doesn't matter that I abuse sex. It's just my temptation. It doesn't matter that I continue to jump off the temple time and time again, testing the Lord because God's grace is right there to catch me. But just as Jesus said, those who don't remain in the vine will be cut off and reserved for burning. James says, faith without works of righteousness is dead. And Paul says, who you choose to obey, you become a slave to. See, the intention and focus of your life, the true desires of your heart matter. It's not an issue of will you produce fruit? We're all producing fruit. The issue is what kind of fruit are you producing? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We can at times fake man into believing that we're something we're not. I got pretty good at that over my life. Growing up as a Christian, growing up in church, you get pretty good at playing the game, saying the words, singing the songs, and looking the part. But God sees through all that. He sees your heart. He sees what the true intention of your heart is. God misses nothing. Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You will always reap what you sow. We need to understand why it's written, why Jesus said, do not test the Lord, because grace is unmerited, not unending. It's a gift, not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It gives us access to salvation. The only way to God to access the grace of God is through a genuine, heartfelt faith, believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming him as Lord and Savior. When you do that with a genuine heart, the Spirit of God will come into you, breathe new life in you, and you will be changed. The, the direction of your life will begin to happen naturally. It won't be something that you force like through a religious uh, participation. It'll be a natural bend where you want to give God glory because of what he's done in your life. But without that kind of faith, without the faith that changes hearts and breathes in new life, we cannot even hope to make it into heaven. We need to understand why it's written not to test the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you can't please God. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe God exists and rewards those who sincerely seek him. Romans 14.23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If we're not living by faith, we are walking in sin. A true believer in Christ is one who recognizes that God's grace is not there to be abused, but it's there to empower us to pursue him, to walk in righteousness because we've been set free from the law to live a new life of faith in Jesus Christ. We think about what Jesus went through. Jesus did not go through the horrors of the cross to give us permission to sin as much as we want to. He went through the horrors of the cross to save us from the judgment that comes upon all who sin. Jesus went through the horrors of the cross not to give us license and liberty to just sin as much as we want to. He went through the horrors of the cross to set us free from the power of sin and give us the grace we need to pursue a life lived in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The statement that God accepts me as I am or God just loves me as I am, is a lie that comes from the pit of hell. It's a twisted truth. Does God love you as you are? Absolutely, yes. He died for you, but he's not content in leaving you where you were because you were dead in your sins. 
If God leaves you where you are, then you will remain on the road that leaves you to where you were already going. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If God left us where we were and as we are, we would remain on the road to death. But he did not come that we would die. He came that we might have life and life more abundantly. That we could discover who we really are as children of God. And 1 John 3, 6 says, Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. God has come to set us free from our sinful nature, to free us from the power of sin. The difference between a true believer and a wannabe Christian is demonstrated in their attitudes and their actions. A Christian will never be perfect, but a Christian pursues repentance and faith in order to live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord. A wannabe keeps on living the way they want without any regard to the heart of the Father. And they give themselves over to sin over and over again. And they don't repent of it because God's grace will be there to catch them. But a believer's life, a true believer's life, is one of repentance. And this attack comes upon Christ to get him to test the Lord in arrogance in his life. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Does he have authority over the enemy? Yes. Would God catch him if he fell? Absolutely yes. That wasn't the issue. Are we God's children if we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Yes. Do we have authority over the enemy? Yes. Does God come to our rescue when we're in need? Absolutely yes. That's not the issue. See, it's about confidence, not arrogance. It's about trust, not testing. Because our identity is rooted in confidence in the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. Not because we're special or anything great. It's not because we deserve it or we've lived a good life. If we are great, we are only great because of the one who is even greater that lives in us. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Why? Because there's nothing good in me. I was on my way to hell. I'm a sinner. If it wasn't for Christ, I'd be nothing. I'd be dead in my trespasses and sin. But because he came and gave his life, and because I made a decision to trust him as my Lord and Savior, to give him my heart, he breathed new life in me. He washed away my sin. It says, my sin is lost in the sea of forgetfulness. God doesn't even remember it. He doesn't even see it. It says that when I have put on Christ, I've put him on like new clothes and I'm covered in the righteousness of God. There's nothing good in me, but because of who lives in me, there's something great in me. And the same is true for you. It's not about us. It's all about him. If we're gonna boast, we boast in Christ Jesus. We worship him as God Almighty for what he's done. But there will be those. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus warns us about who one day will stand before God. And everyone is going to give an account to the Lord. There'll be one day we all stand before God. But he says in Matthew 7, there'll be those who stand before God and says, Jesus, look at all I did. Look at all I did in your name. Healed the sick, cast out devils. I did all these wonderful things. He's talking about religious people. I started a nonprofit in your name. I fed the sick in your name, or fed the hungry in your name. I healed the sick in your name. Look at all these things I did in your name. And Jesus laments and he says, depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. 
He tells these religious people who on the outside looked all so spiritual. He says, I never knew you. Get away from me. So that word iniquity means self-will. It means self-will. Their lives were lived on their own terms. Even the good things they did were to feed their sinful nature and their pride. See, church, we cannot be so blinded by the enemy to think that we can live however we want and not have to endure the consequences. That we can test God time and time again and not face the penalty or consequences for sin. God is not up there waiting to pounce on us for when we make mistakes or do wrong. That's a lie of the enemy. He is waiting on us to lean in, to pursue his heart so he can pour his love out and bless us, to lead us to an abundant life, to restore us to the place we were before the fall in the Garden of Eden. He wants good for us, not disaster. He wants to give us a future and a hope. He desires all this for every one of his kids. But that blessed life is not gonna come if we keep testing the Lord. It's not gonna be what we could have. We're not gonna receive the blessings we could receive if we continue to jump off the foundation of our faith. Until we've immersed ourselves fully in a passionate pursuit of his heart, trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Leaning on the presence, pursuing the presence, digging into the foundation, living on the word of God, pursuing an intimate relationship with God where we hear his voice and obey his commands. We'll never be able to fully realize what God has in store for all of his children. Are you testing or are you trusting? How are you living your life? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for a time of prayer and go into a time of response as the music begins to play. As we face many attacks of the enemy, the enemy is going to call into question your identity, either making you insecure, doubtful, fearful, not recognizing that your sin is forgiven, that you're made new, and causing you to live under a heavy weight of guilt and shame, or he's going to do the other. He's going to make you blind to the reality of your sinfulness, make you overconfident and arrogant, thinking you can just live however you want to, and it doesn't matter that you're a Christian, you prayed a prayer, and now you can just live your life. Maybe in the season of fasting and praying, as we're seeking the Lord together in your prayers, maybe for the first time, need to be prayers of repentance. Maybe God's illuminated to your heart today. The Spirit is speaking to you of ways you've been abusing the grace of God. Or you've just chose to ignore Him or maybe push Him out of your life so that you could continue to feed on the rocks, turning stones into bread, to feed your flesh and your pride rather than feeding on the bread of life, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it's not that the attacks of the enemy are coming. They've come. Paul says we live in this world wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against the enemy kingdom. The attacks have already come. The attacks are constantly flowing. If it's not an insecurity and self-worth, it's in doubting who you are. It's an overconfidence and pride and denial about your sinful heart. And today, the Spirit of God is shining. He's speaking into lives. He's speaking into each of us individually. He's shining a light on the enemy's schemes to show us what we've been falling prey to, how we've been uh, falling and succumbing to the enemy's attacks to open a pathway to live an overcoming life, overcoming the attacks of the enemy, overcoming the things that he's brought into our lives. He wants breakthrough to come in this place. 
He wants us to be so filled with his presence and his glory and unleash us in our, to our city that the enemy flees in terror because of the glory of God that's being um, unleashed into this place. God wants us as his children to live on purpose for the mission of the kingdom of God to bankrupt hell and steal people from the hellfire, souls from the hellfire as we share the gospel and lead people to faith in Christ. But we have to wrestle with these questions today. Are we testing or are we trusting? Are there things in my life I need to repent of and surrender to him so he can remove these burdens? and fill me with peace. Maybe there's some things I falsely believed about God, about myself. And today I just need to come forward and seek him to reveal the truth, to set me free from chains that have been holding me back. Whatever God is speaking to your life, maybe in this moment you're just filled with thankfulness because you recognize what God's done in you. And you recognize with the sacrifice of Christ and the true salvation in your soul, for your soul, has done in your life. The second chance you're able to enjoy the, the new life that you have and the miracles that have been going on in your life. And maybe you're just here and you just want to rejoice and thank God and praise God. In just a moment, as we go into a time of response, I just encourage you to follow what the Spirit of God leads your heart. If you need to come forward and pray, come forward and pray. I'll be down here to help pray with you. Maybe you're here today and you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know there's never been a time in your life where you said truly from your heart, Jesus, I'm going all in with you. I know I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. The only way I'm going to make it is with you. So have my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. If you've never made that decision in just a moment, when Tony begins to sing, I'm going to invite you to come forward and we'll pray together and God is going to radically change your life. He's going to set you on a new path and on a new journey. Maybe you're here today and you have other issues. You have medical condition or a test coming up, sickness or pain in your body and you want prayer for healing. We'll be down here to pray for any and all issues. But as the Spirit of God leads on your heart, you respond. Right now, Father, we just acknowledge you in this place. God, forgive us for testing you, for not acknowledging you. Proverbs says that if we trust in you with all of our heart, lead not unto our own understanding in all of our ways, acknowledge you, you'll direct our path. And that path that you direct us to is one filled with blessing and hope. So God, forgive us from the times we've jumped off the path or we've jumped off the temple in an attempt to become our own God where we fall and pray to the schemes of the enemy. But God, we're seeking your face right now. We're seeking your presence. We're seeking your forgiveness. We're seeking your love. And I just pray you descend on this place. And now as we go into a time of response, Lord, your will would be done. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.